Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul prays and says to them, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come now as we open your word and we ask that you would use it. You would use it to convict us. To show us our sin and our need for Christ our Savior. You would use it to draw us to the cross that we may throw ourselves on Christ again. You might use it to increase our faith. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You can take a seat. We're continuing this morning in our series of, of kind of like life issues, the things of, of, of this world that are coming. And um, we, we've walked through different places and different parts. We, we've, we started with the wonder years is what we, the, the first sermon of, of who we are, the, the formation of our identities in Christ. And, and, and then we talked about sexuality and, and what the Bible has to say about that. And then we, uh, the past couple of weeks, we've talked about parenting. And um, last week in particular, Harry talked about the, the, uh, the idea or the issue of, of school choice and what um, our goal really is among our children. And this week, we're going to take a different approach. We're not going to look at one specific period of time. We're not going to look at one specific life, life issue. We're going to look at something we all share in common. That most days we get up and we eat our breakfast or, you know, your Wheaties or whatever it might be. And you go about your day and your day comes to a close and you climb back in those sheets and you go to bed just to do it all over again. So we're going to look at, at, at the idea that the gospel changes everything in the life of the Christian. That our day-to-day living changes because of what we believe. Many of you know that before I was a seminarian, before I was a pastor, I worked in the world of finance. Um, I was a wholesaler for a very large mutual fund company, um, which meant that I didn't try to sell you things, but I tried to sell the people that sell you financial services things. So I would go into an office of Merrill Lynch reps, and I would try to tell them that my mutual funds and my company, we were better money managers than everyone else. And sometimes that was true, but often it wasn't. I, you know, you, you, you minimize the bad and you, you raise up the good things, right? But I, um, I did this right after college. I graduated in 2005. I went to work for, for Capital Group in 2006. And the things were great. Money was easy and fast. The stock market was rolling and people were just pouring money into the market. And then in 2007, um, I, my, my, uh, my territory actually was New York City, the five boroughs in Westchester County. And so things happened a little bit before the curve in my territory, and I began to hear rumblings of this subprime mortgage mess. You may have heard of it. You may have been affected by it, most likely, on some level, either your retirement accounts or your home value or your job. And so 2007 went off, and it was okay. And then 2008, I was in uh, the territory. I was um, meeting with a registered investment advisor named Judah uh, Stoller, who was, who was a great guy, one of my favorite clients to meet with because he was easy. 
And his office was on Wall Street. And uh, I walked into Judah's office. We were doing our, our normal catching up, how are sales, Judah? And he's saying, yeah, it's starting to slow down. I'm starting to have a lot of calls. People are getting worried, all this volatility. And, and it, was, it was June of 2008. And across the screen on MarketWatch came news that Jamie Dimon and J.P. Morgan Chase had saved Bear Stearns from bankruptcy. And they had agreed in principle to purchase Bear Stearns for $2 a share a company that 18 months before that was worth $120 billion in market capitalization. One of the oldest, most venerable investment banks on Wall Street, and it was gone. When it all settled, they, they purchased it for $10 a share, but I'll never forget that I didn't really care about that. It didn't affect me that much. Bear Stearns didn't do a whole lot of business with me. But Judah's face, on the other hand, mattered. And I could see the desperation I could see the anxiety that he felt. And as I left his office and I began to walk down Wall Street to my next appointment, I saw it in everyone I passed. It it, it was such a a time of of depression and and sullenness in New York City that the New York Times created an entirely new section of its opinions page called Happy Days. Happy Days came with, with this description. The severe economic downturn has forced many people to reassess their values and the way they act on them in their daily lives. For some, the pursuit of happiness, sanity, or even survival has been transformed. Happy Days is a discussion about the search for contentment in its many forms, economic, emotional, physical, spiritual, and the stories of those striving to come to terms with the life they lead. That's how bad things were. You've got to create an entirely new section to try and cheer people up. There was a story that came out in that section a few months after I had left Capital Group in the world of finance. I stopped getting paid. I had to do something else. And it's one that stuck with me, and it starts with these words. Fourteen years ago, I was stabbed in the throat. This is kind of a long story, and it's not the point of the essay. The point is that after my unsuccessful murder, I wasn't happy, unhappy. I wasn't unhappy for an entire year. Those are the words of Tom Kreider, who, who, who contributes often to the opinions page in the New York Times. And Tom goes on in this article to explain how life changed for him with this near-death experience. And when rehab was over, he started making dandelion wine in a big Amish crock pot. He began to play the music from his youth that he's too embarrassed to put its name in print. And he prayed it too loud for his own good and the goodwill he shared with his neighbors. Because his outlook on life had changed. This morning I want to challenge you to realize that your outlook on life should have changed when you began to rest in the work of Christ Jesus. When when the Spirit united you to Christ, it says that you died with Him and you were raised with Him to a new life. And if that's the case, just like Tom, whose life was changed because of this near-death experience, our life should be changed. Our ordinary way of operating should change. Our lives should look distinctively different than those who do not share our faith. There are going to be times, sure, that we share some things with them, but overall, our life should change. And it should change, we're going to just look at three ways that the gospel changes our life. And this gospel is, is the news that's proclaimed right there in Colossians chapter 1, right? That, that this hope that's been stored up for them, that this, this person in Christ Jesus who lived and died and was resurrected 
who was blameless and pure, who, who paid the, the, the penalty for their sins, has stored for them a new hope. And then Paul says to them that, that it's around the whole world growing and bearing fruit. Active verbs. It doesn't just do that. It's continual. And so it should be continual in our lives. So these things that we see that it changed, they should be always changing. We should be always being conformed more and more by the fruit that's being bared in us because of the gospel. So what does it change? First, is it, it changes our priorities. It changes the priorities we have in life. We, we, we heard this last week, really. Uh, Harry preached about uh, school choice. And some of you were in here going, I don't have kids in school anymore. This doesn't matter. But really, it was an exhortation to us. It was a challenge to us about how we think about children in our church and their education. Not just that we want them to understand reading and writing and arithmetic. Not just we want them to know science and social studies and history. I want all of those things for my daughters. But because of the grace that I have been shown in Christ Jesus, my priority is not first their education. My priority is not first that they can read or write. My priority first and foremost is that they know Jesus. That they know that the Heavenly Father loves them. That they know the work of Christ on their behalf and the power of the Spirit that is theirs. Is that a priority for us? And Harry challenged us in talking about our, our, our kids' worship, our children's worship time that happens during the sermon and said, there's not too many of us that are serving there. And he reminded us of, of the vows we take when we baptize kids. The vows we take that say that we're going to help raise them up in the admonishment and, and of the Lord, that, that they might know the gospel, that we might sing it and, and breathe it into them not only as they run around after the service here in the sanctuary, but as they're back in children's church or they're sitting in here among us, that we would be getting down on their level that they might know the glories of the gospel. Is that a priority for you? Is that a priority for us? Because when we really begin to wrestle with the gospel and really begin to see how much we need a Savior and how big the cross is, it transforms our priorities. I know many, many of us, we want our children to grow up to be well-adjusted, contributing members of society. I'm, I'm a good Virginia boy. I was taught yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir, and please, and thank you. I can tell you which fork to use with the first course or the third course. I had to do cotillion twice because I wasn't very good at it. I would throw all of that away for my girls to know Jesus. I would throw it all away because it's far more important they know the love of the Father then they say, please and thank you. Now, I want that too. Where are your priorities? It doesn't just change how we look at, at our children. It changes how we look at even finances. Right? We have examples in, in, in Scripture of two, two men and their different reactions to their encounters with Jesus. Luke recounts for us in, in chapter 18 this rich ruler who's got everything. It just it says he's rich. In the other Gospels, he's a rich young man. Here he's a rich ruler. All we need to know is he's rich. He's got everything he could want. He's got the house he lives in. He's got the river house. He's got the beach house. He's, he's got the yacht. He's got it all, except for one nagging thing. He's got all this stuff, and he wants to enjoy it forever. And so his question to Jesus is, how do I inherit eternal life? What must I do and Jesus says, you know, all this, why do you call me good? No one's good except for God. And then he says, you know the commandments, right? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father. And the rich young ruler says, 
I've done all those since I was a youth. Just full of self-righteousness. And then Jesus hits him where it hurts. He says, sell all that you've got and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the reaction, the reaction of the rich young ruler is what? When he heard these things, he became very sad. When, when, when God begins to pick away at your priorities, when he begins to try to change your priorities, do you walk, walk away very sad? Or do you allow the gospel to change your heart? To reorient your life and your priorities? You turn a page in my Bible, I'm not sure how many page turns it is in yours, and you get another, another man's response. And there's a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And what does it say? It says that, that Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus, who's the chief tax collector, and says, Zacchaeus, come down, for I must stay at your house today. And Zacchaeus either asked for help or jumped, I'm not sure, he's a short guy, and uh, he, he runs down. And he receives Jesus joyfully. And all those around grumble because he's with this, this sinner. But what happens next? He says to Jesus, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus responds, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. What's Zacchaeus' response? The priority of my life is no longer about the accumulation of my wealth or my material things or, or my financial security. I'm going I'm to make sure that anyone I've defrauded, I return to them fourfold. That I'm going to repent to them, that, that, that I'm going to restore them to even better than they should be restored. He receives Jesus joyfully because he understands the love of God. And we know that because that, that, that key little phrase, he is also a son of Abraham. We, we read that and we think, well, he's, he's Jewish. He is. But Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost right afterwards. He's not just a son of Abraham ethnically. He's a son of Abraham whose faith, who by faith, Righteousness was accounted to him. Zacchaeus' faith is what defines him as a son of Abraham. His faith in a loving God and a Savior that mixes up the priorities he has in life. It's not just those places. It's even just our, our relationships. You know, we shift from using people to serving people. Jesus, after he's done washing the disciples' feet, says what? Go and do likewise to one another. You've experienced this love. You've experienced this grace. Now go and show it likewise to one another. How will the world know that we are his disciples? By the way that we love one another and serve one another and care for one another. The way that we're in community with one another. We begin to prioritize people not by how they can benefit us. Not, 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 not by what they can give us or pay us back. We begin to prioritize them as the kingdom does. With love and service. If we're honest with ourselves, we use people all the time. I, I, I know I do. I, um, any, anytime I'm preaching, I usually run my sermon by my wife. This, uh, this one, we were, on the y, we were at the Y on the treadmills, and we were 
talking through my sermon. She knows I like to do that with her. And I, I actually do it not because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm valuing her feedback, but because I'm waiting for her to affirm me and tell me how great of a sermon it is. And, and, and to say, well, you're, you're the next Spurgeon. You're, you're, you know. She never does that. It never happens. Instead, she begins to say, well, you know, I'd say this differently. Or maybe, you might want, like, have you thought about, you know, what this scripture says? And, and every time, I'd, like, I just, why are you doing this? I just want you to affirm me right now that this is good. But we do that with people. We use them to make ourselves feel better, to, to, to give us some sense of value or worth. And the gospel changes that. It says we no longer have to use people to prioritize what they can do for us or how they make us feel. We can begin to just look at them and love them through faith with loving works. We know that the, that the priorities of the kingdom are different, right? Because the last are first. The weak are made strong. The humble are raised up. But our priorities change because our hope changes. We have a changed hope because of the gospel. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica that, that he wants them to know and be, not to be uninformed about those that sleep, about the dead, because he doesn't want them to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It goes on to explain the glories of the resurrection, but even just right there, we see that because we are Christians, we have a hope. The rest of the world hopes in all kinds of things, and, and, and we do too. We have false hopes that, that we chase after all the time. But what Paul's really saying there is that they're not really hopes because they can provide us nothing. They're fleeting and failing. But our hope changes. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Set your hope on the grace of Christ that will be revealed in its fullness when he returns. This hope that there is a second coming of Christ to undo all the things of this world. Hebrews' entire book written to people that are suffering, that are struggling, that are being persecuted. And and the writer of Hebrews spends the the vast majority of of the first part of their book explaining why Christ is so much greater than all the other things. Trying to assure them, don't return to the faith that you've left, but stay rooted in Jesus. And it, 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 it says in, in Hebrews 6 that, that God did this, that, that he, he, these two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us, that we might be encouraged. That we might be encouraged. When, when things aren't going like they're supposed to in your life, when, when things are failing and falling apart, where do you run? When, uh, for, the, for the third time that morning, you've you're got the vacuum out because the two-year-old has spilled the, the, the Purple Box multigrain Cheerios again, and, and you're vacuuming them, them up for the third time, and, and what you realize is that she's running through the house and the, the, the top of the cup of the snack, snack cup is off and she's just making a trail, and she thinks it's a game because now you're chasing her with the vacuum. Or you're changing the third or fourth diaper of the morning and the second or third change of clothes. And that doesn't have to be a baby. 
Where do you run when things aren't going like they're supposed to? When the, when the mundane tasks of life are weighing on you? Is it this greater hope that transforms our priorities? Or do we just resign ourselves that life is sucky? That it's terrible? And this is just how it's going to be? See, the writer of Hebrews doesn't stop with this hope that's to encourage us. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Firm and secure, and it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now it's starting to talk about a person. Starting to give this this idea of hope, some some personality and, and some actions that only people do. Because our hope is Jesus. The one who's our forerunner, who's gone before us, who's entered the Holy of Holy because he is pure and blameless and sinless. And we don't have to look at all these other things in our lives that, that provide us some fleeting amount of comfort and security. We can look at Jesus Christ and Jesus alone to define us, to free us, to comfort us. And where do you run when that, that once-a-week date night with your wife isn't providing the intimacy that you look for and you long for? When, the, when the, the job promotion doesn't come. When sickness begins to take its toll on you and your loved ones. When the diagnosis is not favorable. Paul says, let us have a hope and not grieve like the rest of mankind who is hopeless. Our hope changes our priorities We also have changed actions. Changed actions. Our changed actions, it changes what we do day to day. How how we function and and, and the very things that we do, it changes what we do in them. There's this beautiful book of prayers that uh, some guy with the last name McKelvey um, put together. It's called Every Moment Holy. I want to read for you one of the prayers about changing diapers. Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost, for it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that, like bright, ragged patches, are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. I'm not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I am tending a budding heart that rooted early in such grace-filled devotion might one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction, knowing itself then as both a receptacle and a reservoir of heavenly grace. So this little act of diapering, though in form sometimes felt as base drudgery, often felt as base drudgery, might be better described as one of 10,000 acts by which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfless love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy let it be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and of faith, a true investment in the incremental advance of your kingdom across generations. Open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage of eternity, O Lord. How the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart 
and how the changing of a heart might sit upstream the changing of the world. Amen. It's a different kind of hope that prays that kind of prayer. It's a different kind of priority in life that prays that kind of prayer. We begin to see the mundane things of life in different light. We begin to see them with eternal perspective. That something as simple as changing a diaper or folding laundry become acts by which we proclaim the goodness and the truth of the kingdom of God. You might think, you know, Marty, I go to work and, and my job's pretty easy. I, you know, I pull up a spreadsheet, I do some, some of this, I do some of that, and it's kind of the same thing each and every day. And, and, and you could do what a lot of people do. You could do just enough to do your job. You could, you know, check out the latest fantasy football scores or you could check out the latest baseball scores or read the latest article that you're looking to read or, or you know, pull up solitaire and play a couple games. Or you could let your work and your integrity speak to the, the beauty and the glory of the kingdom so that those above you look at it and say, why is this guy getting so much more done than everyone else? It's because of the hope he has and his priority to glorify God in all he does. And so it changes his actions. Changes his actions. There's a book by this guy named Chris Arnett that's, he was a guy on Wall Street, and he, he, he took in his free time, he'd go take pictures of folks, uh, kind of in the bad sections. And, and then as he moved past taking pictures, he began to talk to them and get to know their lives and, and their stories. And he, he multiplied that and said, I'm going to go to all these little communities um, that have, have been destroyed by, by globalization, that, that have seen manufacturing leave them, and, and I, I'm going to meet those people. And he began to go and hear their stories, and he'd sit in the McDonald's and talk to them in the Waffle House and, 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 and just on down those places. And what he began to see is that uh, these communities are places with, with really high addiction rates. And the, the thing that was in common with those who had been able to get rid of their addiction was their faith in Christ. It was Christianity. Because the church was loving and accepting of them even when they were still addicts. And it's interesting, what Chris says is the reason they became free of their addictions isn't because they tried harder or that there was some awesome 10-step program that led it to them. It's because of the love they have ex- had experienced that spurred them on to change the way they were living. Because the gospel changes us. And we talked about how it changes finances, and we looked at Zacchaeus. You've got Luke 21, the widow's might. You've got these people who are throwing money into the, into the, the, the treasury box of, of the church, and uh, they're rich, and they're putting in tons, and then this little widow comes up, and she puts in what? Two mites. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of you. For all of these gave out of their abundance. And she, she, out of her poverty, put in all of her livelihood. See, when we really begin to wrestle with the gospel, it changes what we do with our money and our finances. We no longer look at it as a place to provide us security. We no longer look at it as a place to provide us comfort. We have those things in Christ. And so we look at it as a way that we can use it to serve the kingdom. We, we go from people who are begrudgingly giving to people who are graciously and sacrificially giving. Not just to the work of the church, but to others. Of our time and our gifts and our money. It changes lives. 
Paul in, in, in Acts 9 is a man who's walking down a road and he encounters the Christ that he has been persecuting. And the glories of the gospel are revealed to him. And what happens? Paul's very life changes. The actions of Paul's life changes. He changes course completely. He changes careers completely. He goes from someone who's chasing down and hunting down Christians and killing them to someone who's traveling all over the world to proclaim the glories and the riches of the gospel to everyone. We see it most poignantly in Peter. Peter was one of the ones that Jesus held closest. Peter had spent his life, he had, he had proclaimed all these wonderful things about Jesus. Jesus, you know, you're, you're the Messiah. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'll never leave you. Jesus, I'll even die for you. And Jesus says, no, you're going you're gonna to deny me. And Peter's like, I'll never deny you. And then he denies him. And Peter feels the, the guilt and the shame of that. And he runs. But then this, this mysterious, wonderful thing happens. Christ overcomes the grave. And he reveals himself to the disciples. And so Peter now knows that, that everything he had heard from Jesus is true. And he's on a boat with his friends. And they're fishing. And it's funny because they were fishermen before they followed Jesus. And now they're fishing again after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and there's three years of following Jesus. They forgot how to fish. Because it says they didn't catch anything. It had been a tough night. And there's someone on the seashore. They can't, you know, maybe they have bad vision. I'm not sure. But they can't tell who it is. And, and the person yells, have, have you caught anything? How's it going out there? How's the fishing? And they're like, it's terrible. We haven't caught a thing. And the person says, throw your nets over the right-hand side and you're going to find fish. And it's about that moment that the beloved disciple, John, leans over to Peter and says, oh, it's him. It's him. And I picture Peter, you know, who's you know, maybe a little bit still ashamed of, of the denial thing, going, are, are you sure? Are you sure it's him? Just not some old guy on the shore? Are you sure? And John says, yes, it's him. And, and, and Peter grabs his clothes and he throws himself overboard, it says. John's realized it's Jesus. That boat's turning. We know the boat's turning because everybody else joins them on the shore in just a little bit. But Peter can't wait. Peter drops everything that he's doing, everything that's a priority at that moment, and says, being with Jesus is the most important thing for me at this moment. And he throws himself overboard and he swims to shore. And he finds Jesus waiting with a couple fish and some bread on the fire. It's that action of, of running to Jesus, of swimming to Jesus, of going to Jesus again and again and again, of seeing it as the most important thing in our day that changes all this other stuff. That first time we run to Jesus, when our hearts have been changed because our hopes changed and our priorities change. And, and, and then we find ourselves sometimes we forget our hope and we forget our priorities and we get mixed up and we find ourselves living in sin and shame and what do we have to do? We have to run back to Jesus. That's the practice of ordinary life for the Christian. It's running to Jesus again and again and again and again. Are your priorities changed? Has your hope changed? Are you running to Jesus? That running to Jesus is the most important out of all of these. Are you running to Him? See, running to Him, He'll set our priorities straight again and again and again. 
as our love for Him grows because we see how big and beautiful the cross is. Our priorities change. Our hope changes. And we start running more and more into the arms of our Savior. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. That we have a Savior who has lived and died and defeated death to be raised again. Lord, we ask that the fruit of that be growing and increasing in us. That we might see ourselves running to Jesus more and more as we see our need for him in greater and greater ways. And that we might be transformed. Our priorities changed and our hopes set and secured in Christ our Savior. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.